We arise this morning to read our sermon text. You can turn in your Bibles. I do hope you have one to the book of First Peter, a book that Martin Luther called the noblest of all Christian letters. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find a Bible that should be nearby you in one of the chairbacks. And this morning's text is on page one thousand and fourteen. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 5 together in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let me read that short yet glorious text, and then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect and powerful word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do praise you this morning that your word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens, that your truth is wonderful. Do remember your word to us this morning, that word that gives us hope through Jesus Christ, our resurrected King, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So much of life can so often feel as though it's little more than full of suffering. Therefore, for many people, so much of life can so often feel that it's little more than surviving and struggling through the the suffering. And one man who knew this and one man who studied this reality was an Austrian psychiatrist in the 1940s named Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish psychiatrist there in Austria, and so he was thrown into one of Hitler's concentration camps during World War II. And the way that he survived through that struggle was studying those that were there in the concentration camp with him. And the way that he did this was he had something like evening counseling sessions with no small number of the prisoners there. And he would seek not only to give them some degree of counsel and advice, he was often trying to discover uh, how they were coping through the horrific circumstances. And after he was released, he ended up publishing all those findings in a best-selling book in the 1940s that was titled Man's Search for Meaning. And what he said was, there in the concentration camp, as he experienced and observed the suffering that belonged to these prisoners, that they would kind of fall into a few simple categories. Uh, There were some uh, for whom suffering under Nazi brutality had caused them themselves to be increasingly brutal towards other people. Uh, Frankl said that the vast majority of people there, however, were people that after just even a few days, they gave up hope altogether. He said, though, that there were a few, and these few, almost to a person, survived through the concentration camp experience. And he said there was a common denominator, this kind of quality that belonged to the heart of those who survived through that immense suffering. And in his book, he spoke about them this way. He said they may have been few in number, 
but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing. And what was the one thing? Hope. It was hope that enabled them to endure, to persevere. And it's hope to which we turn our attention this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, as we see Peter speaking to suffering saints in the first century. And what he means to put into their heart right from the outset, before all of the other counsel that's soon to come, he wants to put a living hope into their souls. It was on January 1st of this year that at Redeemer we began a series through the book of Daniel, and it was a book that has occupied our attention since then that has showed us over and over how God cares in his sovereignty for his people that live in exile. And as we finished that study last week, I thought it would be quite useful for us today to look at more inspired instruction that God has given exiles like you and me. Because if you glance up to verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll see that Peter refers to his hearers as elect exiles. He speaks of them even throughout this letter as these sojourning strangers in the world. And we know in the course of the way the whole letter goes is that these are people that are enduring uh, immense suffering and difficulty. They have overbearing authorities that are governing them. They have difficulty at home, particularly in marriages. Uh, They are enduring ridicule and even abuse from neighbors and people nearby. And Peter even seems to warn in chapter 4 about this coming onslaught of increased persecution that is soon to confront them. And so 1 Peter, if you have eyes to see, is not terribly different in the spiritual conditions underlying the audience as people like you and me today. And so Peter writes this noble letter. He wants to establish them in believing. He wants to guide them in their doing. And he also wants to, to comfort them in their suffering. And so what we're going to try to do along the way in our three verses today, kids, you might think about it in this way, is we're trying to hold up this simple text to a magnifying glass of the Spirit in the same way that a jeweler, if you've ever been to such a jewelry store, might take a precious stone or a diamond and give you some kind of a magnifying glass to look at the beauty and the brilliance of of that jewel underneath a magnifying device. And uh, this text has much beauty and brilliance for us to see. It's why one old preacher said, these three verses give us a string of pearls, a necklace of diamonds, a cabinet of jewels, something far better than all the riches found in the earth. And I want to show you some of that diamond-like qualities that belong to these three verses. Because our theme this morning is living hope. And I want to show you from our three verses, four truths about that living hope. I first want to show you the gift of living hope. Because look again at how Peter begins his instruction. After his greeting in verse 1 and 2, you'll see he says at the beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you were to read this letter later on this afternoon, it wouldn't take you that long. You'll see quite quickly, it's actually in verse 6 of our first chapter, that that Peter immediately gets to these trials and these difficulties that are facing the elect exiles to whom he writes. But the, the first note of his instruction to sufferers is actually a song. 
He's singing a song of praise. And it surely is instructive to us that uh, no less an apostle like Peter uh, can speak to sufferers, and he doesn't begin in this kind of detached, cold way. Now, dear elect exiles in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to elucidate for you the reasons for which you need not worry about your suffering today. First, I want you to see a primary part of your salvation is your regeneration. Secondly, I want you to see a primary part of your salvation is rooted in his resurrection. Now, you might hear that and be kind of like me and think, well, that would be kind of interesting to listen to a lecture like this. But Peter just says, it's time to worship the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, one of the the principal heartbeats that belongs to true godliness is, is blessing God. And students, it could seem a little weird to even hear Peter blessing God in this way because we so often think about God blessing us. But, but blessing is just a word that means adore, to speak things worthy of someone who is to be praised. And I, I wonder even if you can think back on your week last. Perhaps even think about your ordinary week. How many hours pass in an ordinary day before you have this kind of spontaneous song of praise that you give to the Lord. If you are like me, you so often find the day's duties beginning to suffocate even that spirituality right after you wake up. And for Peter here, the the, the principal point that he wants to give to his hearers is a note of praise, but it has a point itself. Notice the text continues. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's speaking about something here we often talk about theologically as the new birth. Uh, Peter, no doubt, is speaking about something he heard the Lord Jesus Christ himself speak. I wonder if any of you can recall a, a quite famous portion of John's gospel where Jesus speaks about being born again. Now, you might know that it was this night where this Pharisee named Nicodemus, he shows up to Jesus and he begins to ask him some questions and quite early on in that conversation, uh, Jesus gives Nicodemus the vital thing he needs to know. He says, truly I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Peter is assuming, isn't he, that his hearers are indeed born again to a living hope. But you need to see the same words from the Lord Jesus unto you this morning, unless someone is born again, unless you are born again, uh, you cannot see God's kingdom. So kids, why do you need to be born again? My grandfather for many years was the head of the Dallas Crime Lab, and I liked to go visit him at his job site because it was quite an interesting job site. And... One time I went and visited him, and we were sitting there in his office, and he was behind his desk, and he said across the way, he said, Jordan, uh, uh, we need to go down to the morgue. And he said this with a a rather pronounced gleam in his eye, uh, because he knows, he knew at the time that I don't like to go to places like the morgue. But because I was with Grandpa Stone that day, I had to go down to the morgue, and so we began to make the journey down to the morgue, this cold and cavernous, giant-like room there in Dallas County. And I remember going through the hallways with some degree of trepidation, wondering how many dead bodies I would see splayed out there in the morgue. 
And to my grandfather's disappointment as he was trying to goad me a little bit, there were only two bodies on gurneys there in the morgue that day. And as a young boy, I remember it so vividly because the two bodies couldn't have been more different in form, uh, appearance. But of course, the external differences were united in an internal similarity. They were dead. You can go to your neighborhood this week. Students, you can walk through your school this week. You could go to a nearby sports complex where kids are playing this week. And you'll see, won't you, people that look different. People that live different. The Bible, though, tells us that apart from Jesus Christ, they're united by the same internal reality. They're dead in sin. That's why they must be born again. And do you see the motivation of the Lord in sovereignly making people live unto salvation? Because notice again, verse 3 tells us what that motivation is. It's according to his great mercy that we are born again. It's not as though the Lord has ever looked on somebody and said it's because of their loveliness. It's because of their worthiness that they should be born again. Nor is it as though the Lord looks on someone struggling for salvation trying to do that which is right, thinking if I just help them along just a little bit, they'll get there. No, no, he looks at souls that are dead in sin. And because of his great mercy, he makes them alive in his son, Christ Jesus, according to his great mercy that abounds, such as his sheer sovereign kindness to people like you and me. Of course, you might know that uh, grace in the Bible, it speaks to our condition of guilt, where mercy uh, more properly speaks to our condition of misery. And it's why we often have to meditate quite deeply on the realities of, of sin. Because I promise you'll, you'll, you'll never see God's mercy as being great until you understand that your sin before the Lord is greater than you can comprehend. So this is the gift of living hope. Uh, the sovereign mercy of God. And I want you to see, secondly, as verse 3 continues, the guarantee of living hope. Peter goes on to say, we've been born again to a living hope. Notice the end of verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Peter had an interesting experience, didn't he, in the resurrected Christ? It was on the night when Jesus was betrayed that Peter, who was, you know, the leader of this merry band of, of disciples, that he denied the Lord three times. Only hours later, he watched the Lord give up his spirit there on that cursed cross of Calvary. And it was on that Good Friday of old that Peter's hopes seemed to be dashed altogether. Uh, come that first Lord's Day, that first Easter Sunday, he wakes in the morning uh, surely with those dashed hopes still present before his mind. And then he hears about these women. They come to him and they say, we, we've been to Jesus' tomb. And oh, we've seen that it's empty. And even there was an angel saying, he's not here. He's risen. And Peter and John hear this. And they race off to the tomb. John in his gospel, funny enough, says, I made it there first. Peter was second. And they look into the tomb. And they see what? It's empty. And then soon enough, that risen Savior appears to Peter. And through that risen encounter, his hope is completely and utterly renewed. 
It's altogether appropriate, isn't it, for Peter to call our attention to a living hope that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that resurrection guarantees our Savior is living. You can look out on the world today, can't you? And uh, you can see that people have no small number of things in which or people upon which they place their hopes. Some of you might even be like that today. You're in here and, and your, your genuine hope for happiness, uh, your hope for contentment and joy in the future, it rests upon a relationship. Maybe that's with a spouse. Maybe that's through children. Maybe that's with a friend. Now, there are others who, who place their hope on things like possessions or power, thinking even money can bring some degree of security, perhaps even a home or a job that can provide stability. Uh, but maybe you know that all such hopes, they're ultimately dead because they have no capability to bring us into eternity. But when you come to Jesus Christ, who is the living, resurrected King, of course you come to hope that's not dead. It's hope that's living. Because, of course, He lives for all time. Therefore, our hope now is one that is capable to bring us into eternity. And I want you to see, thirdly, what we know about, of course, the gain of this living hope. You see verse 4 begins, uh, we're told that he has brought us to an inheritance. And if you just stop right there, oh, what you need to know in, in the ordinary New Testament hearer's mind, when, when they hear the word inheritance, it has this rich Old Testament background. It's all throughout the Old Testament. You see God's people rejoicing in their inheritance, receiving an inheritance, longing for their inheritance. And almost always uh, that inheritance would have been a portion in the promised land. The New Testament tells us that that ultimate portion, of course, does reside in the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, that holy city of Zion that is soon to come. But even as I was saying earlier for Psalm 16, the Lord, our portion, is. The great inheritance that belongs to God's people is, of course, the Lord Jesus himself. And students, I hope you recognize that even just the simple mention uh, from Peter uh, of this word that we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance. It underscores for us that all those that have come to Jesus Christ are counted among God's children. Because uh, you know, don't you, that it's, it's family members. It's those beloved that they receive the inheritance. And he wants us to know just how glorious the inheritance is. You'll see he used these three adjectives in verse 4. It's imperishable. It's undefiled, and it's unfading. In the original language, those words actually all rhyme. He's got this clear rhetorical impulse with those words. So if we wanted to invent a few words to try to capture uh, what Peter is after here, you can say that he has brought us, of course, to new life in Christ Jesus, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefilable, and unfadable. It's imperishable, kids, because that means it can't decay. Of course, it's also said to be secondly undefiled. That means it can't be contaminated. And it's unfading, which means it lasts. Yeah, some of you in here uh, today may have received an inheritance before from maybe a parent or a grandparent. And you might acutely know that the inheritance that we can receive in this life, it's never imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Eventually, it's going to give out. Eventually, it's going to run out. 
But you see that he says the living hope that we have, the great gain is an inheritance that will never disappear. And of course it's imperishable, undefilable, and unfatable. Because if Jesus is our inheritance, he's imperishable, he's undefiled, he's unfading in his glory and his greatness. Sometime last year I was going out to lunch with a seminary student and we had gone to a restaurant upon the recommendation of a friend and we got there kind of early on in, in the lunch hour and we said, hey, we'd like you know a table for two and uh, the hostess kind of looked at us with a degree of surprise and said, well, do you have a reservation? And we said, no, we didn't realize you were such an institution. And, and he said, well, you, you can't have a seat here unless you don't have a reservation, so you're going to have to have lunch in the bar. And I want you to see how there's a reservation for God's people in heaven. Look at the end of verse, five, or verse 4, I'm sorry. This is an inheritance that is eternal. It's kept, do you see, in verse 4, kept in heaven for you. You can translate that word kept as reserved. Oh, when the Lord calls you to that place up yonder and you appear before the Lord's throne, will you have a reservation to an inheritance in heaven? All those who know the living hope that's found in Jesus Christ, they will appear before the Father and they have a reserved, a kept inheritance there in heaven, which is the great gain of living hope. Fourthly, I want you to see from verse 5, the guardian of living hope. He continues to say that we are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a military word, that, uh, the verb there of guarded. It means something like garrison. It would have painted a picture of a garrison in that ancient world. And kids, he's not thinking about a prisoner being guarded as much as, as a royalty being guarded. Uh, maybe some of you students have seen the President of the United States moving about in our country before, you know, on TV or on the news, going from one speech to another, going from one campaign stop to another. And is it not true that as, as the President is moving about that he, he's guarded by secret service? He's guarded by people that are meant to take care of him. And what Peter is telling us is living hope, inheritance, salvation, it's guarded by God's power until the last day. So certain, so sure is this hope. It will never fall. It will never fail. Why? Because God, of course, in his power never falls and never fails. And notice even at the end of verse 5, he's underscoring for us that we receive this, of course, through faith. And it's for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Um, many times in Christian churches like our own, uh, Christians can so often think of salvation as a past reality, which it is. Uh, they can think about it as a present reality. It's that too. But do you realize it's also a future reality? It's as though the Lord is saying here at the end of verse 5 through his servant Peter, it's not as though that God needs to prepare anything further for your salvation. It's ready right now. And he is guarding you right now for that inheritance that he is guarding right now through his son that, of course, he guarded in perfection, raising him from the dead. Do you see how that present suffering that was striking Peter's original hearers, what, what they needed in his mind right from the outset wasn't merely just this song of praise. They needed future reality in Jesus Christ 
to comfort them in the present. Have you ever been at a place in your own trial and suffering and affliction where it seems as though you just can't see through to the other side? Such as the present pain that you just can't reach out and even grasp anything in the future. Well, for Peter, that's exactly what we have to do if we're going to sustain faith through the suffering, laying hold of a, of a living hope that, of course, is God's gift. It's guaranteed in the Son. It's a great gain that brings us inheritance. And it's likewise guarded by God's power. There's this sociologist uh, that I follow that in recent years has spent much of her time studying through interviews and observation and all kinds of other methods what has come to be called Generation Z or what she's defined as iGen, this group of people that were essentially born in the smartphone era. And in, in recent years, certainly post-pandemic, uh, what she and her colleagues have come to refer to this generation as not just merely Generation Z or I generation. Uh, they refer to it as, quote, the pessimistic generation. They're pessimistic about culture, pessimistic about climate, pessimistic about government, pessimistic about authority, pessimistic about entertainment, pessimistic about sports, pessimistic. We live, don't we? in a culture that is pessimistic. We, we therefore, perhaps more than we want to admit even today, find a, a creep of pessimism into a local church like our own. When from our text and the rest of the New Testament, we, we can clearly declare that local churches are meant to be these local assemblies of living hope, not worldly pessimism. And what I want to help you do as we close out our time this morning, I want to extend out Peter's instruction just a little bit into verses 6 through 8 and help you see a few final implications of what this living hope will look like among a people who genuinely possess it. I want you to see, first of all, that living hope sings of God's sovereignty. Of course, that's what we see, don't we, in verse 3, 4, and 5. Uh, I hope you notice this is undeniable thread that belongs to the text about God's sovereignty in the whole reality of living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, verse 3. He, of course, has given us an inheritance, verse 4. Verse 5, he is keeping us, guarding us for that last day. And if you look at the tenses, actually, of verse 3, 4, and 5, you see, God reigns sovereign over the past. God reigns sovereign over the present. God reigns sovereign over the future. So, of course, you should be hopeful. Because God is good. God is gracious to all his people. Why be worried, anxious, pessimistic, when the song of sovereignty that erupts from Peter's lips can be our own, if that living hope would seat itself in your very heart? Number two, I want you to notice how living hope Shows joy in suffering. Notice verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's a whole spirituality of suffering actually wrapped up there in, in verse 6 and 7. Uh, what Peter is telling us is that, that suffering often is necessary for God's people. 
For without suffering, how would your faith be tested? How would your faith be proven? It's through the crucible of suffering that God often molds us after the character of Jesus Christ. But that kind of living hope in the midst of suffering, it's found in that simple phrase there in verse 6 of, for a little while. Does not Satan often take that suffering that comes into your life and tries to get you to think it's anything but a little while. But when the eyes are fixed on the future glory that belongs to an eternity with Jesus Christ, what you realize is that living hope shows forth those sufferings are are genuinely just a little while here on earth. And therefore you can rejoice even in the sorrow because the Lord is doing something to your greater gain. Number three, living hope shows forth in love for the Savior. You see that simply, don't you, in in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Sometimes I come across these writings from in Paul and Peter's writings and, and think about, well, easy for you to say, Peter. What I mean by that is, well, you saw him with your very eyes through his ordinary ministry throughout the Lord's time here in preaching and shepherding and caring Of course, Peter was one of three disciples that saw Jesus Christ transfigured in glory there on that majestic mountain of old. Sure, easy for you, Peter, to love that which you've already seen. But what Peter says here, true, is so applicable to us, isn't it? You love him even though you have not seen him. You haven't seen him with your eyes. But do you love him? And notice the qualities of that love in the rest of verse 8. Do not now see him, you believe in him. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and it's filled with glory. When living hope floods into the soul, what you find is people who love the Savior, even though they haven't seen him, they're looking for him. And that that love is so inexhaustible in its fullness, so inexpressible in its force, uh, that what Peter is saying here is it's unquenchable. It's, It's undeniable. So what then would you see if you came across a local church like this for whom pessimism wasn't dominant but living hope was ruling and reigning you would see people and hear people singing of God's sovereign mercy you would find people in the midst of trials and suffering rejoicing in what they are doing of course you would find people who could not contain the love of a resurrected king For it's his living resurrection that, of course, brings us to a living hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that by your grace and by your great mercy, that you would stir up within our hearts that hope to which we have been called to in Jesus Christ, that you would bring us that love inexpressible, that joy that's unquenchable, and your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.